0: We, we, we. we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. column. Column, 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 column. Hi, pals. Matt Welch here for a little solo mini version of the fifth column podcast. I wanted to tell y'all a personal story with some political and media implications of potential interest, about a funny old guy who died a couple months back named Richard Reardon. Dicko, as we called him to his face, was best known for being the two-term mayor of Los Angeles during the insane 1990s. He finally graduated to the Great Tiki Bar in the Sky on April 19th at the ripe old age of 92. I am probably one of at least 10,000 Southern Californians who had an entertaining and eventful off-and-on relationship with the old coot. But to my knowledge, there are very few of us, basically just me, my dear old pal Ken Lane of Desert Oracle fame, and the great education reformer Tim DeRoche, who came this close 20 years ago to starting up one of the world's most improbable newspapers. A collaboration, crossover event really, between a politically powerful Brentwood mega-millionaire and some broke-ass nobody freelancers. This is the story, or my blinkered version of the story, anyway, of the never-quite-relaunched L.A. Examiner. Examiner. I was at the L.A. Press Club Awards Gala the other night. And found myself sitting next to the great California reporter, John rigardi And uh, he asked me, so uh, how close did you guys get to actually starting that uh, Reardon paper? This here, finally, is my attempt at an answer. We got uh, as far as a 52-page, condemned-as-possibly-racist, zero-issue, with contributions from the likes of the late great media columnist Kathy Sipe, the social scientist James Q. Wilson, the brilliant ESPN sports writer Eric Neal, illustrator extraordinaire and known ruski Roman Gain, and even Billy Crystal. Not Bill. Billy. Until the project experienced what one might call a rapid, unscheduled disassembly on the lunch pad. Actually, it was more like collateral damage from the recall of California Governor Gray Davis, believe it or not, though I do suspect old Dick would have found some other reason to pull out. And yes, he would have made that exact same joke if he were here today. The following tale is subject to the usual degradations of middle-aged man memory, not to mention the absolute crapification of search engines. need a government committee on that. The malware death of my own lousy old website, plus the dangerous, if predictable, distortions caused by what the scientific community in Silver Lake, California has referred to as the LSD margaritas. Buyer beware, unreliable narrator, and all that. For regular fifth column listeners, feel free to peace out at any time. If this isn't floating your boat, I won't be mad. Conversely, for people being introduced to this podcast for the first time, please do poke around the archives. We the Fifth dot dot com, seven years worth. It's usually uh, more conversational uh, and topical than this episode, and maybe a little bit more tipsy. I do remember this much about the Reardon Caper. It all began in March two thousand two. When the phone rang in our air-conditionless, one-bedroom, $700-a-month, 1920s apartment in Los Feliz, downhill from the Greek theater. Ring, 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 went the combo fax phone printer thingy. Will you please hold for Mayor Reardon? A pleasant female voice said in the line, I would eventually come to know this disembodied presence as Jeanette. I, um, Sure. A couple beats go by. I'm probably making crazy pantomime gestures to my poor wife, who's working about five feet away from me at a desk in the kitchen crammed against the window overlooking Vermont. So, barks out the familiar voice. I've been told that if I want to start a newspaper in Los Angeles, the people I need to talk to are Matt Welch and Ken Lane. Now, I've had some weird famous people cold calls in my life. Hunter Thompson at my girlfriend's apartments back when I was 18 Ariana Huffington just before she lost lost or launched the Huffington Post she had actually forgotten that she knew me which made that even funnier Van Morrison's old guitarist long story but this one is probably the telephone call that did the most to change the course of my career to the extent the word career even applied to me at that point in my stupid life in fact I can recall writing a super bitter and whiny little piece from my own very little noticed website in August of 2001, so like seven or eight months before Reardon called, uh, under the headline, Astonishingly Bad Career Management. I'd moved back to the States in early 98, not at all on purpose, after capping off my eight years living abroad by absolutely botching an attempted move to Cuba. When that predictably failed, I washed up at my dad's very crowded house in the LBC. I was 29 years old, newly married, proud new owner of an $800 1988 K car with some kind of degenerative skin disease that I had bought at a police auction in Cerritos. I had zero idea of what it was like to live in my own country as a grown-ass adult, and thus embarked upon a freelance journalism career. (laughs) which during that first year netted me a grand total of $7,000. Thank God the world's French-speaking news consumers had an insatiable demand for written and spoken content from Hollywood and the Silicon Valley. And thank God my wife was willing to provide said content at all hours of basically every night sometimes under comical pseudonyms, so that competitors wouldn't get mad about hearing her otherwise distinctive voice on the other channels. My own business started perking up a little bit in 1999 because the first dot-com bubble was busy inflating. Places like Furniture.com were paying a dollar a word, and I got some table scraps from the cash bonfire over at the notorious Digital Entertainment Network, or DEN. But that brief Hindenburg style ride came crashing down in March of 2000, so goodbye, freelance money. We'd just begun to emerge from that calamity when the bastards flew the planes into the World Trade Center and Pentagon, after which I began ranting at some length on my personal war blog a word which just a couple of weeks ago reached Wikipedia status, so print it on my tombstone, etc. This development understandably horrified the two solidly lefty places I was writing for at the time, one of which uh, had titled my regular column The $75 Outrage, because that's how much they paid me for each one. Uh, Still, $75 is more than zero. Uh, So basically, when the phone rang in March 2002, I had no money, uh, no prospect of money. I would furiously type out thousands of words late into the night at a publication called um, mattwelch.com. I'd written maybe my first couple of freelance pieces for reason, plus the occasional barky op-ed for the LA Daily News and or the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And that was it. Heck of a job, Welchie. Enjoy those early 30s. So one might reasonably ask, why the hell was the recent former mayor of Los Angeles, California, calling me and that crazy bearded dude down the street? The thing is, he wasn't exactly wrong, too. And we're going to get to that. But first, since Dick is the guy who just died, let's talk about who Richard Reardon was and where he was at in March of 2002. You can go refill your drink if you'd like. God knows I am. Richard Rudin was born in 1930, overachieving little Irish kid from Queens, went to Princeton and Michigan Law, came out to L.A. in the late 50s, and like so many East Coast transplants back then, just immediately fell in love with the place. Joined the big shot downtown law firm O'Melveny & Myers, got so successful there that by the 1970s, he launched a new big shot law firm called Reardon & McKenzie, which was always in the middle of commerce and politics in L.A., He also got in on the ground floor of the private equity business. So let's just say he had a pretty good sense of timing. Tom Bradley had been the mayor of Los Angeles since I was in kindergarten, but he was finally stepping down after the end of his term in 1993. Reardon had always had ambitions beyond his very interesting work. He wanted to be a philosopher. Lord knows he wanted to be a comedian, maybe some kind of detective novelist. He loved L.A. more than is probably legal He knew most of the rich people in town, yet he was also genuinely delighted when hanging out with the poors. Big-time extrovert, quick with a drink, happiest in the middle of chaos, always buying beloved old restaurants just because. Basically figured that by 1993, his time was now. And man, was it. I experienced Southern California in the early 1990s, mostly from 6,000 miles away, through letters, occasional visits, plus the recurring front-page horror stories in the International Herald Tribune, which made the place look and feel like Beirut, only with more earthquakes. He had the Rodney King stomping in 1991, the very predictable, though worse than you could ever imagine, riots in 92 after those cops were acquitted. Huge recession and real estate dive, first time in decades, because the Cold War had ended and 200,000 aerospace jobs vamooshed. Gang violence going haywire, fires, floods, water spouts, O.J., Spur Posse. Everyone was looking for someone to blame. Mexicans, cops, gangster rap, Bill Clinton, car companies, corporate architecture, Hollywood violence. Really, uh, I, go check out, uh, if you don't believe what I'm saying, uh, the movie Grand Canyon from back then. and try to keep a straight face. <clears throat> I'll always remember coming back for a wedding in the spring of 1991 looking around and talking to everyone and just thinking, man, I got a bad feeling about this. Reardon was part of that Rudy Giuliani generation of moderate Republican mayors, experimenting with Manhattan Institute-style urban reform, pro-business, pro-choice, or at least not loudly anti-abortion, pro-immigrant, anti-crime. They're trying to turn around these huge Democratic cities that people had kind of given up on, except as backdrops for apocalyptic movies. These guys had come in, they'd do their battles with public sector unions, criticize the K-12 education status quo, preside over, frankly, too much police corruption and violence, but also crime rates plunging for the first time in three decades. They were constantly poking at and being irritated by the press corps, and they otherwise acted like unembarrassable civic boosters 24 hours a day. Raw, rah goofballs all the way down. Was Dick Reardon a great mayor? I was only there for half of it. Uh, The Rampart police scandal in the late 1990s sure was terrible. And the school district launched a gigantor construction campaign with thousands of eminent domain displacements, just as enrollment was falling off a cliff. But by most accounts, he was a very steady hand, can-do mentality in the aftermath, particularly of the Northridge earthquake in 1994 after which the region seemed to finally kind of bottom out and start trending upward again. Should be noted here that California then was still a two-party state. The governor during Reardon's first term was the deservedly controversial Republican Pete Wilson, himself a former mayor of the then-always-Republican San Diego. California had brought the world uh, Herbert Hoover, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. The LA Times, for most of its history, had been a GOP kingmaker, as well as the most viciously anti-union newspaper in the country. Throughout the 80s and 90s, the L.A. County Board of Supervisors, which is always more important and less scrutinized, less sexy, frankly, than the L.A. mayor and city council, had had key Republicans and moderate Democrats. The combination of political friction and centristy deal making kind of helped things out dicko was term limited out in july of 2001 obviously those term limits were partly his idea so he decided to take a run at california's loathsome democratic governor gray davis which seemed like a perfectly fine idea on paper popular two-term moderate republican mayor of the state's dominant city sorry frisco versus a guy whose name described both his face and his political appeal, and who was busy at the time being blamed for massive power outages all across the state. But Davis, uh, who had been covering and following and despising since the late 1980s, was a ruthless and clever son of a bitch when it came to political knife work. Faced with the prospect of a likable Dick Reardon going statewide, Old Gray did something that's common now, but was a genuine political innovation back in the day. The Democrat intervene in a Republican primary, nine million dollars worth of ads back when that was real money, so that he could choose a more beatable opponent. Reardon started out the primary season forty percentage points ahead. Couldn't really be bothered to learn the names of the competition, uh, which comprised of a forgettable if successful statewide elected Secretary of State named Bill Jones, plus a rich and super stiff conservative political amateur named Bill Simon who, in fairness, had been active in policy stuff and was the son of Richard Nixon's former Treasury secretary. But still, he was nobody's idea of a retail politician with any crossover appeal. Nowadays, if you're a Democrat monkeying around in a Republican primary like that, you'd pay for some political hack to make up some bullshit citizens for real California conservatism or something, which would promptly accuse Reardon or Peter Meyer or whoever of being a weird Hollywood rhino who wanted to abort white babies. But this was before Citizens United. And also, Davis didn't need to pretend to campaign to the right of Richard Reardon. Gray Davis was a real third-way, lock-em-up 1990s Democrat when it came to criminal justice, saying over and over again that he wished America could be more like Singapore, where drug dealers got the death penalty and you'd best not be caught chewing gum. In fact, it was always Matt uh, mattwelch.com house style um, to refer to Gray Davis on first reference as Singapore Gray. So Singapore Gray uh, started running ads during the primary, accurately accusing Reardon of wanting a moratorium on the death penalty and such. Non-Californians and or people much younger than me probably have a hard time understanding now how convinced centrist Democrats were back then that the death penalty had to be like the universe, always expanding. Anyway, uh, it worked. Republicans took the bait. Reardon's lead started shrinking. Bill Simon threw buckets of his own money into the campaign. And by the end of the primary, it was a damn rout. Simon stomped Reardon by 18 percentage points. The New York Times called it a stunning upset. So, you know, it must be true. Um, That all happened on March 5th, 2002. My phone rang shortly thereafter. I have a decent idea now what had happened after the election dick was pissed (laughs) at gray davis for being a dirty trickster and a terrible governor uh at california republicans very much so for leaning into their yahoo wilderness phase where they remain to this day and at the la times his hometown paper which didn't exactly throw flowers at his campaign and was constantly just giving off this sourpuss vibe no fun like they're embarrassed to be in southern california basically the opposite of Reardon's whole act. So there he was, all ornery about having a promising political career cut down at the knees. He was still full of piss and vinegar, policy ideas about education and transportation and pension reform, surrounded by movers and shakers and comedians in his Brentwood living room. So now what? Sharks gotta keep swimming. Maybe a newspaper. One of the people always circling around Reardon's orbit was Jill Stewart, a sort of agro-centrist, independent journalist who back then was working at the LA New Times, the lippy alt-weekly upstart owned by Mike Lacey and Jim Larkin, the dudes who started the New Times chain out of Phoenix and who now face like 100 years or 100 counts or 1,000 years of prostitution and money laundering in connection with the online adult advertising business business they own called Backpage.com, which is one of the most egregious press freedom trials of this century. But that's a story for another day. Go check out Elizabeth Nolan Brown's work at Reason Magazine. Uh, I knew Jill from a decade prior uh, when she visited Prague, And had become the first American reporter to write a profile of our little expatriate newspaper there, I think for editor and publisher. She tried to move out to Prague for a while, bought a car, went back home, and then we kind of crashed her car. Sorry, Jill. Anyway, we became reacquainted back in L.A., started doing stuff associated with the then long-neglected L.A. Press Club. She knew that Ken Lane and I were part of this blogger world, which was then beginning to attract media attention. And that we ran this cheeky and snappy little website called LAexaminer.com, along with some other friends. And that we all had active plans for converting that little website into a print publication of some kind. So I'm pretty sure that Jill gave Reardon my phone number. All of us otherwise unlike-minded weirdos back then were in general agreement that LA was starving for a publication, any publication that was actually fun that liked and felt like Los Angeles, rather than constantly looking to the East Coast for validation, that was a magnet for some of the really great freelancers in town, and that wasn't hostage to the usual dreary, predictable politics. So, Reardon says to me on the phone, I'm thinking about something like a like an L.A. version of the New York Observer. Upscale Weekly, good Hollywood gossip, mail it to all the richest zip codes in Brentwood and Beverly Hills. Yeah said me and Lane. Stomach's just growling with poverty. That is a terrible idea. Here's a little unsolicited career advice for all you young'uns out there, and maybe even a couple of you olders. Don't take the money. Or at least, don't let your desperate need or want of money make you say yes to things that actually deserve a no. Get hired to do the job you want, not what the monocle wearers are excited about this week. If you turn the wrong job down today, tomorrow, you'll actually still be doing what you love rather than be all burned out. Time is precious. Guard it jealously. Also, just maybe the rich person will have more respect for the bum who doesn't tell him what he wants to hear and instead brings news about something he hadn't heard before. Back in 1999, for example, the aforementioned Digital Entertainment Network offered what to me was an unfathomably large sum of money at a time when the word broke (laughs) didn't really come close to capturing my moneylessness. But after having seen what an infuriating and corrupting and soul killing mess that place was, I said no. Within one year, they had gone tits up, not in a good way. The co-founder was an international sex fugitive, and an online journalism review account for me about that fiasco became my first real semi-famous piece of writing. Courtney Love reprinted it on her website, for Christ's sakes. Anyway, uh, back to Reardon. Lane and I had been thinking about the problem of a new L.A. publication off and on for about five years at this point. Comparing business models, writing about the media, both as business and art at the OJR and elsewhere. Lane had co-founded one of the earliest and greatest daily news sites on the interwebs called Tabloid.net, I think in 1996. Hilariously outraged, old-timey tabloid headlines from all over the globe, written in the style of world-weary ex-newspaper reporters living in the hate while scowling at all the tech yuppies in Frisco. Our uh, Financial Times Hungarian-Brit-Silicon Valley correspondent friend, Nick Denton, just loved the site and was starting to dream up some online publishing ideas of his own, dot, dot, dot. Tabloid had gone away by the turn of the millennium, but in the spring of 2001, just as the battle to succeed Reardon as mayor uh, had begun heating up, Ken and I, along with our old journalist pals Amy Collins, Ben Sullivan, and Joel Brand, God love them all, launched this great little black-and-white website called laexaminer.com, taking the name, the domain name, and some of the underdog spirit from the old L.A. Herald-Examiner daily newspaper that had been folded by the Hearst Empire in 1989. And yes, I still have that farewell issue... Sweet little Griffith Observatory logo, earthquake font, all designed by Lane, of course, and a bunch of drudge style permalinks to absolutely every Southern California news organization and journalist and blogger under the sun. Part of that decision was that we wanted to have a central repository for L.A.'s scattered and freelancer heavy journalism scene. Another aspect was almost a media prank. We had no staff names or bylines or about us pages on the site. We just read these little tart one paragraph squibs about the Shaq Kobe feud or highlighting some obscure piece of worthy local journalism or mocking whatever dumb thing the L.A. Times did that day. And we wanted to find out who would win the ego surfing contest the fastest, try to figure out who we were and what the hell we were up to, to the surprise of absolutely nobody who ever met her. That contest was won decisively, I think, even on the first day or certainly first week by Kathy Seip, which started a fast friendship. Seip uh, also probably enjoyed our juvenile nicknames for various L.A. Times staffers, such as Rancid Howie for TV critic Howard Rosenberg or David Days Late and a Million Words Long Shaw for their serially overpraised Pulitzer Prize winning media critic. Anyway, We started LAexaminer.com to amuse ourselves, but also to potentially be a sort of media criticism foot in the door to start something larger and broader in print, possibly with fewer cheap jokes, though, who knows, considering the source, Uh, what would that print publication be? We looked at all the existing models. The alt-weeklies were already beginning to starve to death and generally didn't have a clue about the web. Glossy magazines with starlets and perfume ads weren't our bag, much as we had both enjoyed Buzz magazine back in the 90s. The New York Observer, a kind of one-off category by an art dude who wanted to rub and throw elbows in Manhattan society, was an artistic success, we liked reading it, but uh, a business catastrophe, just losing millions of dollars a year, double-digit margin losses. There were two possibilities, seemingly opposed to one another, that caught our attention. The first was a kind of New Yorker, but for LA by college dropouts instead of Columbia J school grads exuding West Coast vibe, but not necessarily always being about California. The same cheap New Yorker, thin paper stock, lots of cartoons, long form stuff mixed with shorter amusements, skeleton staff of a dozen undervalued geniuses, book ups, excerpts up the wazoo, 46 issues a year, $2 million budget. We never really could come up with a proper name for it other than L.A. Examiner. I was a champion of Beat L.A. Get it? Um, That was understandably a lonely position. We did have many fun conversations with the guys who started California and New West magazines, which were worthy attempts, um, as well as our friend Alan Meyer, the former publisher of Buzz, who had graduated to the insane world of crisis PR. Boy, could he uh, tell you stories. Door number two, business model-wise, was an emerging category at the time that seemed to hold a lot of promise back then, but it's mostly a forgettable cookie cutter now. It's those uh, free little Metro paper deals that you get handed on weekday mornings going to the subway, or at least that you see in news racks, wherever they still have news racks. Our idea was to take that format, business model, and instead of making a cookie cutter, make it super pugilistic, Defiantly working class, huge, splashy tabloid headlines, photos for the immigrants and thrill seekers, staff of 40, budget of 10 million, sock them right in the jaw, sprig of parsley. As uh, Ken Lane wrote in The All 10 years ago in a retrospective about the Reardon Project, I plead guilty to hating dull newspapers, and I plead guilty to a pro Los Angeles boosterism. Journalists should love the beat they cover. Local journalists should love the town they call home. Pinpoint what's wrong and raise hell about it. But if your approach is always dreary and schoolmarmy, you should go out of business. The voice of a city cannot hate itself. Amen. When we finally got to Reardon's mansion in Brentwood a couple weeks later, he was surrounded by a collection of people eagerly saying yes to his vision of a New York observer for 90210 or 90049, I think, more accurately. So no doubt he found it jarring yet intriguing to see these two hobos (laughs) vigorously telling him no. What's more, uh, and perhaps more impressive, we had a fresh new business model that had just dropped straight into our laps. The Smarter Times, a website uh, by Ira Stoll, dedicated to taking the piss out of the New York Times every day, had just been acquired by Seth Lipsky, interesting character that Michael Moynihan sometimes talks about, and was about to come out the other end as a brand new competitive newspaper. Exhuming an old print publication called The New York Sun, which was making its debut right then, April 2002. Reardon got all fired up. Tom Cruise on a couch situation, zinging us with questions, pressuring us to staff up our imaginary newspaper with editors and publishers, some of whom began flying out uh, as Lane recounted in his piece. We met a garrulous and somewhat disheveled old Irishman full of zeal and filthy jokes. He was always a kind host and gave his scruffy, low-income visitors his full attention. During one session in his Mexican-tiled living room, the unseen presence of his personal secretary had to repeatedly remind him by intercom that his friend Bill Clinton was waiting on the line. As in New York City, Reardon's birthplace, a moderate Republican in coastal California is a moderate Democrat anywhere else in the country. I liked him right away. Note that that political description was perfectly apt at the time. There are no moderate Republicans left in Los Angeles or New York, at least not in the sense that they uh, maintain any meaningful influence on the modern Republican Party. Anyway, Reardon insisted on coming to our turf, Silver Lake, to advance the ball in some kind of business meeting at a great old 1960s Mexican restaurant called Casita del Campo. Uh, founded by a dancer in West Side Story and featuring margaritas that just absolutely twist a man's skull. There was already supposed to be, I think, a quasi-LA Press Club party there that night, organized by Kathy Sipe and Amy Alcon and probably my wife in honor of the bloggers who were becoming all the rage in media circles. Reardon was just going to stop by an hour or so earlier so we can get down to brass tacks. As I recall, and... I cannot stress enough how much I do not. The dude sat uh, at a corner table, took one look at the pitcher of LSD margaritas, said, oh, I shouldn't have any of that. Lunged for the handle, spilled himself a huge one. And with a matter of minutes, he was slurring dirty jokes, insulting random journalists and bouncing a giggling waitress on his knee. She knew him. Calm down. But also, yeah, that was a different era. It was a marvelous shit show. At some point, Reardon said, I don't do business with anyone I can't drink with, or something to that effect. How he performed at whatever civic function he was being driven to later that night, I have zero idea. Crossing Hyperion was enough of a challenge for the rest of us, and I'm still not sure we all survived. There was nothing signed in ink, let alone blood or salt that night, or probably ever. But for the moment... Everyone was just fine with us saying that Matt Welch and Ken Lane were working on a new newspaper project with former Mayor Richard Reardon, probably called the L.A. Examiner. Now came the media attention, and man, was that funny. On one hand, there are maybe 200 resumes and clip packages that arrived at my one-bedroom apartment by the U.S. Mail in hard copy people just desperate to join any journalism crusade that sounded like it had a pulse and a sense of humor and had maybe heard of the internet. We posted a little form on the website, hey, would you be potentially interested in subscribing to some future LA Examiner newspaper deal? And I think, though I don't remember, that the results poured in by the thousands. On the other hand, there was the journalistic depictions of what we were trying to do, which rarely resembled reality And actually foreshadowed or maybe just demonstrated to my very slow to understand ears how much reporters considered their own jobs to be enforcing the mores of the political class. Similar to our no byline policy, Lane and I had a kind of no politics policy, or at least every damn journalist wanted to talk to us about our supposed political slant. And we did our level best to insist that for us it wasn't about that, which it actually wasn't. This only gets funnier in retrospect. Ken and I have known each other for more than three decades, wrote songs together, made records together, worked on newspapers together, performed at weddings together, started failed projects together, plotted constantly into the night, and still, in fact, do if a tad less frequently. Politics has almost never been part of any of it, as should be normal in human relationships. These days, and I'll get this 30% wrong, but I'm just kind of showing, demonstrating the point. He's kind of a prophetic, Ed Abbey, spiritual desert socialist and traveling Mark Twain, one man performer who hates politics and loves explorations of the inexplicable and would probably rather be living in his ancient homeland of New Orleans, maybe. Um, I am whatever I am. Back then, 9-11 had made everyone crazy, us very much included, But I was basically a liberal in the Central European style, super anti-commie, pro-individual liberty and weirdness, easily irritated by the Chomskyites around me. And Lane was maybe a few paces to the left of that, though definitely more likely to dream out loud about punching Cokie Roberts in the mouth, (laughs) which he did like a half a dozen interviews. It's fantastic. Uh, Whatever we have been in any phase, it has never been conservative. And it certainly has never been about some kind of gross nostalgia for the glory days of the whites. As Lane would put it in a 2003 interview with the converted Orthodox Jew and pornography addict, Luke Ford, quote, weirdly, when people finally noticed our work, they were mostly conservatives or libertarians. I always thought I was a liberal, an old school, anti-communist, pro-civil rights liberal. Turns out most people consider me a neocon or libertarian. Who would have thunk it? In late April of 2002, I went on WNYC's uh, widely syndicated on the media program just after Ira Stoll of the New York Sun. The anchor, Brooke Gladstone, introduced things this way. Bent on starting his own conservative paper, Reardon is hiring the Examiner's founders to help him compete against the L.A. Times. Like, none of that was true. When I pointed out that compared to the New York Sun in particular, our paper wouldn't have such a set ideological position and that I don't think that you would be able to describe it accurately as conservative, for instance. Gladstone retorted, well, isn't a conservative paper exactly what the former mayor wants to have? Later, she probed some more. Do you think the Times is too politically left? It was like this all the time. Reporters would give us this half-cocked eyebrow. And say, so, you hate uh, political correctness, hmm? And you can just see their little racist dars going haywire. We were supposedly would-be mouthpieces for the silent majority, the online version of the Michael Douglas character in Falling Down, who, in fairness, I did begin to physically resemble a decade or so later. Um, Los Angeles Magazine even compared us to Civil War reenactors, whatever the fuck that means. This despite the fact that a very simple Google search would have shown me and Lane and laexaminer.com publishing dozens of pieces over just the previous year or two, complaining about racist cops and anti-immigration Republicans, agitating for the barrio lawyer Antonio Villaragosa over the white bread power San Pedro piece of crap, Jim Hahn, who we call Jinky Hahn, of course, because we're very mature. We sure as hell valued the OC Weekly's Ask a Mexican columnist, Gustavo Ariano, a hell of a lot more than anyone over at the L.A. Times ever had uh, to that point. Even if we weren't closet Minutemen, to name one group of local yahoos that both of us had written critically about, we certainly were in denial about being conservative, or as the L.A. Weekly's labor-loving boar Harold Meyerson called us, neoconservative. Very few fellow journalists took our oft-repeated origin story at face value. Here's how Lane explained this process 10 years ago. We just hated boring newspapers, and the L.A.T. was the worst big city example of the preciousness and overeducation plaguing the still-powerful newspaper industry at the turn of the century. Politics is the realm of the dumb. If you're not blatantly political in your approach to life, politically obsessed people will read exactly what they want into your writing. This stupid reality that he was describing would actually cost me a job a half year later, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So there we were, late spring of 2002, becoming minor internet media blogging celebrities, still with nothing firm, no timetables, certainly no money, and every meeting up in Brentwood, a chaotic mess that would generally begin with wherever the last person advising Reardon had left off which was invariably, those Welch and Lane characters are crazy and inexperienced, you should totally do a rich person newspaper. And then it would end with us having mostly talked about that once again, only to have him say, so, who should be the editor? It was fun, but kind of exhausting and increasingly frustrating. Then again, we did still own and operate LAexaminer.com, independent of whatever Reardon was doing or saying, And those subscription pledges and job resumes and loyalty oaths were still rolling into my apartment and inbox, after all. I should should go look those up. There's some interesting names there that I'm sure uh, would not be caught dead in association with me and or Ken, probably both. There were other journalists at the time bending Reardon's ear Of course, Sularis, who is the uh, publisher of the L.A. Downtown News. Jim Bellows, wonderful, great old Herald Examiner and Washington Star veteran, like a newspaper, like always with the number two newspaper in town. Um, He was like a thousand years old, but he's a real hoot. Uh, L.A. Times lifer Bill Boyarski was somehow lurking just off camera. Pat Cadell, because why not? Um, The Southern California suburban theorist Joel Kotkin had a pretty good piece about all this dick whispering over at the Jewish Journal, quote, sources close to Reardon suggest that the former mayor is far from sure what he what tack he wants to take. Some worry openly that the amateurishness that characterized the mayor's recent disastrous gubernatorial run will now spill into this venture. Top Reardon advisors on the project, who include several close personal associates, feel that a sophisticated weekly a la The New York Observer would make the most sense. But another perhaps more exciting and risky alternative lies with following something closer to the New York Sun model. Matt Welch, the 30-something publisher of the lively LA Examiner website, has been urging Reardon in this direction. He sees a daily tabloid that covers Los Angeles with passion and interest in contrast to the perceived indifference of the times as having far more relevance than a weekly publication that, in his words, appeals to 25,000 rich people on the West Side. Welch may be right, and his zeal for a Los Angeles publication that appeals to local pride and interests reflects an increasingly strong local identity among a new generation of post-riot writers and journalists, but it still may boil down to a matter of dollars and cents. And since it's largely Reardon's pocket change that is at issue, what happens next is largely up to him. That sure turned out to be true. After a month or three of all this excitement... I realized just how broke I was and how maxed out my credit cards would soon be. I recall, and here I am thankful that my website archives are fakakta, writing a whiny little post on my website saying basically, hey, I know it looks like I'm fancy and famous now, but really I'm super broke and hungry and sad. Please send help. And much to my eternal gratitude and also shame, readers sent me more than a thousand dollars and like cookies and stuff back when that was pretty hard to do at some point reason magazine god bless him started offering me little me little fill instants whenever a staff writer would go on book sabbatical or whatever and i worked my ass off for that money the uh fax phone hotline from brentwood started ringing a little bit less and then in the fall of 2002 lane got another phone call this time from our pal tony ortega over at the new times asking him if he'd take a high-ranking editor job Finally, maybe some money. <laughs> Psych. Literally the day he was supposed to go in to be introduced to the staff, instead, the staff got introduced to the unemployment line. Seems that the New Times chain and its rival Village Voice Media, which owned the bigger and fatter LA Weekly, had agreed on an anti-competitive deal to close the Village Voice property in Cleveland and the New Times outlet in Los Angeles. Oh, cruel fate. But wait, as part of an antitrust negotiation with the Department of Justice that would conclude in January 2003, a bunch of New Times news racks and other assets were rumored to be going to a competing print weekly. If there was a competing print weekly. Ring, ring, ring. The Reardon Examiner was back in business, except now. Forget all that tabloid daily stuff. We needed to fill those weekly news racks with a weekly. And we needed that weekly to be tangible by January. Faced with a tight deadline, Reardon was smart enough to delegate to a consultant he'd worked with on a project or two named Tim DeRoche. Tim, in turn, was a smart enough consultant to notice that Ken and I had the most detailed plans of the many that were scattered around planet Dick, even for the model we didn't prefer and that we both uh, had the track record and sudden buildup of willing journalistic contacts to get a prototype out right quick. I don't have access to any contemporaneous emails, so my memory of this particular phase is hazy. But I imagine that any hesitancy Ken and I might have felt about working on something closer to the original New York Observer-style idea would have evaporated in the face of three realities. one as a kind of glossy weekly on really nice color paper, it would resemble at least some of our magazine concept. Two, uh, Tim DeRoche especially, along with publisher Jane Kahn and designer Eric Almondraw had a pretty good handle on protecting our day-to-day operations and discussions from Dicko's wild mood swings. And three, maybe this time around we might actually get paid. But the main reason, then, now, forever... Was almost certainly, if there is anything in this life, aside from the very related concept of parenthood, better than starting something new, I sure as hell haven't found it. Bands, record labels, newspapers, blogs, websites, print quarterlies, podcasts, radio stations. Ken once started the world's greatest Americana radio station in Skopje, Macedonia, called Viper Radio. Those who know, totally know. You dream up a thing that by definition has never existed before. You shape it as close as you can to that vision while also being super open to whatever new discoveries you and your fired up pals are making along the way. If you're lucky enough, the little embryo can squirt out into the world language as a fully fledged being with its own personality and requirements. It's part of you, yes, but it's also gloriously separate from you. Hopefully you may even be so fortunate that a community of people, strangers to you at first, will spring up around the thing. I can barely describe this feeling without choking up a little bit. It's that beautiful. So fuck it. Let's put out a prototype. Let's let the DOJ know that we're serious. Show something shiny to potential advertisers and investors with the hope of raising five million shlomolyans. Is that what we said? Shlomolyans? In time for a proper June launch. No sex ads, no smudgy alt weekly paper, full color agency ads. My favorite Lane quote at the time as we were going to press was We hope to be available in supermarkets I can't afford, like Gelson's. Ken was in charge of the issue. I was doing my annual Christmas trip to France right in the middle of production. The finished product was about one third Reardon's Rolodex, like Billy Crystal. Uh, Linda Opes, the producer of Sleepless in Seattle, the centrist political gal Susan Estrich. About one-third hours, Kathy Seid, Chris Nolan, Eric Neal, and one-third kind of both, like Jill Stewart and Joel Kotkin. We had letters to the editor from Amy Alcon and Mark Haefley wedding announcements, cultural recommendations, the whole bit. On the cover, because we were making a point out of celebrating and also investigating LA sports, were Shaq and Kobe the dysfunctional champions, as illustrated by the great caricaturist Roman Gen. This was greeted upon arrival with accusations of racism, partly because Roman drew a lot for the Weekly Standard and National Review, partly because people, even back then, were eager to detect undercover Klansmen in their midst. The prototype got decent reviews in places like the Christian Science Monitor, The Economist, which, of course, had the headline, The Big Dick. Uh, And even the L.A. Times. But the subtext was never far from the surface. L.A. Times media critic Tim Rutten criticized, quote, Reardon's ferocious resentment of what he calls political correctness. Ding, ding, ding. And then went on to assert that the paper's, quote, imagined readership seems much like the Los Angeles that twice elected Reardon mayor. More affluent, better educated, more conservative, and most of all, much whiter, than the city as a whole in fact latinos asians and african americans unless they play basketball or a musical instrument are conspicuously absent from this prototype who knew that bernard parks was white i guess Rutten did leave us with his very somber prayer a colorblind society is not one in which people of color are invisible 20 years ago already with this shit. from the newspaper i should hasten to add that was notorious for ignoring East LA and South Central and the 909 area code and any other geographic chunk that drove down the median readership income numbers at advertising meetings. For 40 years, the Times had operated as this very energetic, very imperious monopolist buying out and folding competitors, fattening up on the largest advertising hall in the country. And working actively both in the ad department and in the editorial, much as they wouldn't admit it, to hive off the most deep pocketed rump of their long captive audience. As one ad executive there cheerfully told me back then, well, we can't be all things to all people. They were still only just beginning to realize what happens when a readership base and ad market has other choices. So what happened to The Examiner? Just one week after the prototype rolled off the presses, Ted Costa, a big anti-tax activist, announced that he was organizing a recall effort against Governor Gray Davis. This one seemed to have legs. There were rolling power outages up and down the state. Davis's approval ratings were in the crapper. And after the dot-com collapse and then 9-11, the absolute collapse in income tax receipts meant that California's budget deficit was approaching roughly $11 billion adjusted for inflation more than the budget deficits of the other 49 states combined. True story. It has been forgotten because of what came after, but the most likely Republican candidate to sit at the top of any potential recall replacement ballot as the months ticked by in 2003 was a guy named Richard Reardon. Who else would it be? Pete Wilson, as the story goes, which I mostly believe, single-handedly turned California into a blue state by going too hard in the paint on Mexicans. Bill Simon had just proved he couldn't win statewide. Tom McClintock, a fiscal hawk state senator who was clearly itching to run, had just lost two statewide elections of his own. Daryl Issa, the San Diego congressman who largely bankrolled the signature-gathering effort, was the guy Democrats really wanted to run against, since he was a fire-breathing conservative type who was kind of sort of starting trying to buy his way into office. ISA started throwing millions of dollars at the campaign beginning in early May. Our little fictitious June launch date was quickly and very quietly pushed back. The signature gathering threshold was reached ahead of schedule in July, which meant that the recall election would be held in October of 2003. Candidates had until August 9th to file for a wide open race. The field would eventually include Larry Flint, Ariana Huffington, Gary Coleman... It's that porn actress's name. I forget her as well. Uh, And the guy I ended up voting for, obviously, Jack Grisham of the Long Beach punk band TSOL. As late as August 6th, three days before the filing deadline, when it came to replacing a massively unpopular governor, the smart money was on Richard Reardon. That night, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who had had an agreement with Reardon that whichever them decided to run, the other one would drop out and endorse went on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He's failing them terribly. And this is why he needs to be recalled. Mm-hmm. And this is why I'm going to run for governor of the state of California. The rest is weirdo California political history. By then, Lane and I were long gone. Uh, he had packed up and moved to Reno after his wife got a good job there. We moved into their old ramshackle house in Silver Lake about a loquats throw from Casita del Campo. Occasionally, he or I might pop up in some blog comment section to mildly correct the latest misconception about the project, but we'd known since February that Reardon's attentions were elsewhere. The whole experience, as truly fun as it had been, had stretched us both financially beyond any hope of dreaming up some dickless newspaper project of our own, the grand total of 500 or $1,500, I can't remember which, uh, that I got in 11 months of scheming with a guy who probably tipped that much at restaurants per week was not enough to keep the collection agency wolves at bay. I'd begun hustling up what looked like might finally be a decent freelance racket by then. One or two columns a month for Canada's National Post, entree into a new uh, magazine in the Great White North called The Walrus. Some reason work when it came around the odd foreign policy piece for the Beirut Daily Star. And all of this benefited much from my association and publicity via the Reardon Project. Most promisingly, for a moment anyway, I got approached near the end of 2002 to write a regular media column for the lefty political magazine, The American Prospect. In fact, even as the Reardon Examiner prototype was being hustled into print, the prospect not only bit on a 2,000-word feature from me about how the newspaper business, led very much by the New York Times, had become a tool for transmitting and enforcing elite cultural and aesthetic and political values, totally divorced from the experience of everyday Americans, they asked me to make it twice as long. In it, I interviewed a bunch of guys who had started up Monday through Friday free tabloid dailies, a model I still held some out uh, some hope for. And I dinged the demographic massaging over at the LA Times as well. Here is where the joke gets really funny. My now expanded piece, which was very much a kind of Michael Moynihan-ish or Ken Lanian or Batya Ungar Sargon-style rant, about class differences in journalism, written for a left labor publication and tweaking the kajillionaire Paul Krugman for sneering at McMansions, graduated to the fact checking process. Hosanna's all around. Good job. Then suddenly I was hit with an email informing me that my article and in fact, my services overall were no longer desired by the American prospect. Some of the editors had concerns. My chief contact there wrote me that your affiliation with the soon-to-launch LA Examiner rather firmly places you on a different part of the political spectrum than the prospect. Though it's clear to me from reading your writings that you are more politically independent than conservative, the increasingly prominent affiliation with Reardon has given some of our editors pause." to be clear, that some of our editors was most definitely the sourpuss Democratic Socialist Harold Meyerson, who had been the executive editor of the LA Weekly throughout the whole 1990s and had a senior leadership position over the prospect. He was very the very same idiot who'd called the LA Examiner neoconservative, which just never made sense. So after a year of being scolded by establishment journalists that my proposed newspaper was too obviously political... When really it was not, I had my most promising job offer in five years pulled out from under me purely for reasons of politics. It really was that beautiful. Would Richard Reardon have pulled the trigger on a newspaper project if Great Davis hadn't been recalled? Nah, the man didn't exactly get rich by bankrolling the questionable print journalism models of penniless weirdos. The very real business reality uh, was that newspaper ownership back then, uh, even back then, I should say, was already a mugs game. Name me one new printed newspaper from the past 25 years that has been a financial and artistic success. Don't think you can, though. Please leave nominations in the comments. Ken and I in 2003 still clung on to the ancient faith, or at least the noble doomed romance that had informed our respective careers. I think it's fair to say that we have both since moved on. As for Dick Reardon, I have nothing but gratitude for our brief and wonderfully unlikely collaboration. He had enough of an ear for a story and enough of an eye for talent to open, if briefly, a door that for most of our careers up to that point remained slammed shut. The same newspapers that wouldn't give my application for a cub reporter job the time of day in 1998, which is basically every single daily newspaper in California, were all writing about me within four years. An audience for a different type of editorial approach, one with a certain tolerance and humor, announced itself to us in that process. Friendships were forged that remain to this day. The LA Examiner, Jackass website, and Semi-Fancy prototype both existed in this world for a brief period of time, at least, made some people smile and led to the next interesting things, including for me, hilariously enough, a job three years later at the LA Times, which for me, for a few wild weeks there had me assigning and editing and occasionally writing every unsigned in-house editorial mouth of the LA Times, old jackass McFriendy over here, uh, as ridiculous as all that still sounds. What is the old, uh, the old uh, phrase? First they ignore you, then they call you a racist, and then they hire you? It's fine. Anyway, to Dick Reardon, wherever you are, enjoy that bottomless supply of LSD margaritas. Newspapers may not matter much anymore, but we're all still out here trying to make the next new thing. As for everyone still listening at here at the end... If you don't follow Lane's marvelous and weird Desert Oracle, you're really missing out. DeRoche is doing the Lord's work over at Available to All, trying to open up enrollment at good K-12 schools to kids on the outside of zip code zones. Tim has also made plenty of art on his own. And we're trying to keep you all entertained right here at the fifth column. Thank you for listening to this and to that. Goodbye.